0: Hello sons and lovers, welcome to episode 2 of Mensplaining Mensa, being recorded at 3.24am, because that's how much I love you guys. So, in this episode, we have on our agenda a little bit of housekeeping, some apologies and items I forgot to include in the first episode, followed by a more targeted treatment of my thoughts on media, ...that I hinted at, uh, one of the many things I hinted at in the first episode. By the way, I realize now that that first episode was painfully generic, kind of general. I didn't get very specific about anything, really. Uh, So I'd like to say I'm going to try to get better about that. And since I can spend entire episodes focused on a single theme, I think it will be uh, much more interesting listening. So a couple things I forgot in the first episode. I forgot to shill. And although you'll never hear a commercial or ad on this podcast, it is important that it's visible. So if you've got a second, if you could please give me a rating or a review on any of the platforms this is on, I'd really appreciate it. I heard iTunes is the you know most influential place to do that, but I understand if you don't have an Apple account to do that with, In the same way that I didn't have an Apple account to make this podcast, so I had to make my first Apple account. So, yeah, if you have iTunes, please do that. If not, you know, Spotify, Google, really, really appreciate it. So, let's get Nostradamus out of the way. Uh, Nostradamus told me that he cannot stand being asked about the Big Bang Theory every week, so uh, I agreed with him that we would change the topic every week. So, today, We will ask Nostradamus. Nostradamus, why do people like J.J. Abrams so much? People like J.J. Abrams because he makes Michael Bay look like Stanley Kubrick. Why, thank you, Nostradamus. One more point of order before we get into this. I plan to release episodes weekly on Thursdays or Fridays, but I would love it if you followed me on Twitter or bookmarked my website in order to be aware of when exactly that happens. Uh, I link to both those accounts on the podcast's webpage. And the website is theivoryglower.com, so like theivorytower.com, except instead of a T, it's a G as in Gary, L as in Larry. And that's the same handle on Twitter, theivoryglower, and you can find me there on to the apology tour. So, there were many flaws in that first episode. You may have heard dishes being cleaned in the background. The volume levels were all over the place. The dialogue would cut in and out. Just the overall the editing was just horrible. Uh, I am working on that and hopefully the second episode will be a lot better. I'm learning, as you can imagine. Uh, more importantly, though, I, I did want to note that I, d- in the first episode, and it will probably happen again, I sometimes am a little too fast and loose with generalizing about Mensa when I'm really talking about Mensa-Chan, which is that uh, seedy underbelly of Mensa that is very similar to 4chan, what I called an unmoderated hellscape of bigotry, which I stand by. And if, in particular, Uh I become acutely aware that if you are a person who has agreed to be on this podcast and are trying it out to see if you're sure, you might get a little scared by how confrontational I'm being. So I I just would like to ask anyone in that position to give me the benefit of the doubt and let me know so we can talk through it and of course if you don't feel comfortable, I, I completely understand. Just a couple small notes, follow ups to things I said last episode. Uh, I forgot to mention that uh, when I said that the top two percent of scores on an IQ test get in, and oh, the one in fifty thing, I forgot that the point of my saying that was that I don't actually think one in fifty is that special, and because of that, I, I don't. I think it's easier than most people think to get in. I know that sounds weird, but I mean, I know a lot of people who I think would get in, and you know, like I said in the last episode, I really didn't think I would, so. Not that special, but kind of the the point of this podcast. So, you know, somewhere in between there, I guess. Um, it is now looking like Jamie Loftus, the author of the podcast that inspired this podcast, is ignoring me, which is completely understandable. I tried to contact her on Twitter, and I also reached out to her agent through her website, and I haven't heard anything. So, uh, I mean, she's not that famous. <laughs> But in any case, uh, that's another reason I'd really like you to rate this podcast up, get me some visibility so I can finally get Jamie on here. I think that she will be our white whale of sorts. And and if you help me get us there, then I will do one of those YouTube reveals. Like I'll reveal something secret about me. So um, yeah, I'm sure that will motivate you even more. Uh, I also... Um, you know, this this may deserve further discussion. It's just kind of an aside that I forgot to mention. Uh, my wife, who I like to call teacher wife, because it sounds like sister wife, and I think sister wives are funny. Uh, teacher wife it hates it when I kind of unintentionally boast about IQ, and it made me wonder w- what the difference is between actively verbally boasting about it and kind of doing it in your ho- own head. Uh, Being someone who doesn't really talk about it that much and really talk that much at all, at least to people I don't know, uh, you know, most of my boasting happens in my head, and I don't think it's that different, but it's much harder to control when it's in one's own head, and I am learning to be more sensitive about that the second episode is super important uh, as you probably know the second of anything tends to be a huge test for quality so you know once again hope you guys like this um i also would like to throw in a couple weird stories uh, and notes possibly from jamie's podcast and or my own life related to mensa that wouldn't really fit in anywhere else And also, it sounds like none of you are going to listen to her podcast because I asked you to, which is fine. But um, then I will regale you with tales from it. So, uh, weird My Year in Mensa story. That's Jamie Loftus' podcast. She ended up going to the annual gathering that's sort of like the, uh, the Juggalo annual gathering. I think it has a funny name, but I forgot. Except it's for Mensans. Not too different. Just kidding, kind of. Anyway, so when you go to the AG, as they call it, uh, well, her experience involved at registration, they asked her to put a sticker, a colored dot sticker on her shirt that indicated her physical comfort with hugging. And there was a red sticker, which meant no, a yellow one that I guess meant maybe. a green one that meant yes, and then a blue one that meant you're single. That is one of the most messed up things uh, I have heard in a while. I I mean, I can't even begin to... I mean, I I don't want to begin to... I shouldn't have to explain how gross and wrong-headed that is. And it goes um, kind of a ways... It's another piece of evidence in sort of my list of how sometimes Mensa just misses things. So that's that. And here's a funny story from my personal life. Uh, one time I went on out on a second date, and it was a very important date because it was the second one, if you've been paying attention. And it was going well, but I just wasn't closing the deal. And so I thought it would be cute to kind of go in this little wooded area by you know the zoo we were visiting uh ostensibly to you know move things forward but of course i couldn't function or that sounds like something that i'm not trying to say but i i screwed up and so i panicked and then started telling her all about how i was in mensa and then yeah that was the end of that so that was kind of a funny story her name was ishtar by the way which i thought was really cool i told her i was intimidated by that as you might imagine anyway doesn't matter All right, so today's topic is unified media theory, which is just what I call my broad, all-encompassing theory on movies and TV shows media that I like. For the sake of argument, we'll just talk about movies today, although the same argument can be ported over to any medium, almost, you know, sometimes it might not quite work. So in the last episode, I promised to get into why I admire Ethan Hawke for shitting on Marvel movies, and the time to explain has come. Just like I can't talk about mental in public because people tend to get defensive, and rightfully so, I can't talk about my favorite movies in public because most people haven't heard of them and you know might be annoyed by that. You know, uh, you better than me. By the way, my wife calls me the original hipster or hipsteriest hipster, if you're not already thinking that. But I've learned to speak about movies in a way that prevents people from hating me. Uh, one of those ways is by talking about Marvel movies, since the majority of movie goers like them. Of course, that also means I'm always hiding, which is kind of a weird thing, but. You know, I think a lot of you, you, you listeners out there, know what that's like, uh, having to kind of hide who you are a lot of the time. Uh, I hope that everyone who loves Marvel movies also knows someone who hates them, because you need balance in your life. You need some moderation, a little push in the pull, you know. Uh, so, well, uh, you know me now, so I can be that person if you'd like. <laughs> so, let's start with a food analogy, uh, and we'll use McDonald's here anyone will admit that mcdonald's is bad for you and society in many ways particularly if it's all or most of what you or uh, a community eats by the way i recently realized that mcdonald's isn't so much a restaurant as it is a food assembly warehouse since no one touches or tastes the food they just slap it together and hand it to you uh, but i guess that's fairly obvious uh, uh, i just thought it was funny to call it a food assembly warehouse But, so why is McDonald's incredibly popular and successful, and why will it survive the COVID crisis when so many mom-and-pop restaurants will go under? Well, because it's easy to get and widely available, among other things, but for now let's focus on those two qualities. Guess what else is easy to get and widely available? Wink. We can all admit diversity of food intake is important, especially if that means moderating the junk that you eat. You shouldn't eat too much McDonald's. So why is it any different for anything else we consume, like movies? You might say, well, eating Marvel movies doesn't actually hurt you. And I'd say, just as McDonald's clogs your heart, too much Marvel movies clogs your brain. And actually your heart, too. But Sorry, I know I said I wouldn't do this, but I will have to come back to that later. Now imagine a person who only ever watches Marvel movies. or things like Marvel movies. And then imagine trying to talk to them about a movie that's a bit more complicated. I don't know. El Topo, that's probably a little obscure. Uh, Phantom Thread is kind of a recent, one of my favorite recent movies. Uh, It's P.T. Anderson's latest with uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. It lost out to that Fishman movie. I thought that was a travesty. So the thing is that I- if you tried to do that, um, and if they'd even seen that complex movie, because there is that problem that you know someone whose diet consists of all McDonald's, aka all Marvel, you know doesn't go around to find better things; they just keep eating the same stuff. So they they might not even you know have have seen it. But if they have, they're not going to have a good foundation from which to engage. It, it's like competing in a race with someone who only eats McDonald's. They're not going to be able to run it very well. Now, of course, this is a fictional person. I mean, there might be a child who will only watch Marvel movies. Um, Wait, no, I I do believe there probably are a lot of adults doing that, which uh, i got to say is kind of sad. I mean, if you spend your adult life doing things that children do, um, I just, I'm sorry, maybe it's too judgmental, but I think that's unusual about that. And I'm not saying that you can't have hobbies or interests that, that you share in common with children. It's more about the wider field of your interests. So basically what I'm saying, if the pinnacle of your experience, your movie experience, is a Marvel movie, then yeah, you're the person I'm talking about. Now, we can see here that for many uh, mass-consumed mass items, convenience and commodity is are key features. But note that convenience and commodity are also what is killing Earth. I'm not saying Marvel movies are killing the Earth, at least not directly. Um, Actually, you might be able to make an argument for that in terms of how much more resources a movie like that uses than an art film, but I digress. Uh, I'm just saying a person would be smart to be wary of too much convenience and commodity. You know, most of the things evolutionarily that our body finds pleasing Often are things we need to be wary about: junk food, junk movies. You know. So, so why is commodity and convenience a bad thing for movies? Well, uh, it, it's like asking why can't we have nice, different things? Y- if you just look at a big box store or, once again, McDonald's, the more those organizations uh, or in this case big box production companies i might call them the more power those companies amass and the more conglomeration that occurs in the industry disney um, the less diversity you're going to get in your product, and we can already see the effect that that has had on the middle class in terms of our economy and innovation i am concerned that that could happen to media as well, if we don't care for those movies that inspire the next generation to do more than um, make colorful reels of people hitting each other and, and crying and disintegrating and stuff. But anyway, uh, there's a huge parallel here with the idea that we need the influence of money cut out of anything that matters. Back in 2000, when I voted for Ralph Nader, yeah, you heard that right, I voted for Ralph Nader in 2000, um, he was talking about a lot of things that, and I love this, that the major party is talking about now, partly because it presages our current discussion. Over-reliance on how much money something makes leads to lesser quality, corruption, the bottom dollar, and the deterioration of ideals and institutions, Uh, so it is with China, so it is with movies and so it is with middle age and having a family and raising children you have to make sacrifices for things in your life and sometimes that requires that you sell out in a sense and I'm not saying that's always wrong obviously you should sell out for the benefit of your children I suppose I'm just suggesting that we should take more care how often we do that And in fact, how it even influences our family or children if we don't instill in them more than doing something that allows us to pay the bills. Now, you might say, okay, hipster, heard it before, stop being a stob. And I get that. But I'm trying to communicate something more than just a tossed-off hipster insult to J.J. Abrams, which, by the way, I will keep doing that forever. Um... So most of what we've talked about have just been setting up the utensils for the meal we're, we're about to have. And the key question here is, what is it that I would like to change about movies or consumers of movies or the industry? And uh, I don't know, this, this might be something you didn't expect to hear. I, I think that the whole range of arts and, and entertainment that we have access to are all important, so long as they're balanced. I mean, just as Marvel movies need art films for a healthy media ecosystem uh, so does rotting flesh need living things and you know those two things have to work together in concert to maintain life and so i'm not trying to make an objective statement about what kind of art or entertainment should be created and all else eliminated it's just a question of maintaining balance if we suddenly make one disappear we wouldn't be able to have the other and in fact uh, that's something that's happening in the film industry right now, with the dominance of the blockbuster and the obsolescence of anything else. The problem, though, is if an imbalance is created in which one form dominates, it sets the system off kilter. And you know, why does this happen? Uh, money, of course. Uh, as we're seeing now that the 1% should not be what they are, it should not have such an influence on us. It's the same with movies. We should be careful when we only consume the well-funded gruel that's served to us and goes down easy that's coming from the corporations whose only aim is money. That is suspicious. And I think we're seeing that in so many different realms now. And the movie realm is no different. So, from a broader view, which I think might help because sometimes, as you can tell when I get detailed, I I can get into the weeds and uh, fall apart a little. So thanks for bearing with me. So anyway, so from a broader perspective, and what I'm saying is follow the money. Anything you do, follow the money. And when you find where the concentration of wealth is, you will also find what is wrong with that thing. And so just as we're now doing in politics, as we've done in the food industry, I am just suggesting we apply that to the movie industry. And it would be interesting to see what we turn up. And in fact, as a long-term goal, uh, I would think we could restructure the movie industry just as we're trying to restructure society to make it more equitable. And that starts with looking at the top 1% of production companies turning out that crap and figuring out a better way to distribute the resources to balance that environment. And by the way, just to preempt the the accusation that's sure to come that you know, who am I to tell what to watch or um, how to have fun? I just want to make a distinction. I, if you watch stuff to just have fun, strictly just to have fun. Yeah, no that that is entirely out of my purview, I guess. But I'm talking about developing expertise, and so why is it that, for example, someone who plays basketball, when they're given tips about how to become a better player, is generally receptive? They don't say, "Hey, stop! I'm just trying to have fun. Don't don't help me get better." But when it comes to entertainment, you can no longer say that. My theory is that people have this artificial divide between, you know, in in the arts and entertainment that oh, none of it's you know really that important. It's all relative, Uh, and that is one of the most odious opinions uh, in, in my view. And it's something that we'll see over and over again, I think, as we poke at various elements of our culture. And we'll see a reoccurring theme that by listening to those who are weakest, so generally minorities or underrepresented groups, we can see the path to eventual reform that will, like I said, make, make things more equitable. And you know it applies to every industry. Gosh, there's so much more I wanted to say about unified media theory. And I'll, I'm just, I have to throw this in there. I, I wanted to make an observation about how tracing the lineage of a movie or a director's inspiration conjures this figure that's very similar to a food chain. So, I mean, even a dope like J.J. Abrams would say something like, Oh, I love ripping off Steven Spielberg wholesale. Spielberg's not even that good, but then Spielberg would say, okay, I have an influence Kurosawa. And as you see, the the quality, the the originality gets stronger the further down the chain you go. And I'm just afraid that that chain could either be cut or artificially created. In the same way that the DeVos family creates astroturf movements, like fake grassroots movements, I see that happening with movies where we won't have actual original voices anymore, I'm afraid. There'll be some sort of simulacrum or some simulation of what used to pass for original content. But anyway, I digress. Teacher wife says my, I have to watch out for my episodes getting too long, and we haven't even gotten to the interview portion yet, which I will start here in just a moment. Today's guest is my friend Mike. Uh, He is uh, in Mensa and probably one of the kindest, um, most open-minded person I've met in the group. And he gave me a ton of content, probably enough to go maybe two more episodes. So bear with me if it's a little choppy or if it seems like I'm jumping in midway. I actually cut out a segment that works well with our recent discussion about culture, just a few or media, just a few minutes ago. You might notice that this interview is also a lot more free flowing than the self interview from the first episode. I decided that going through an itemized list of questions wasn't really the best way to do this. So I'm just going to quickly run through some of the answers Mike provided to my battery of questions that uh, many of which I I get into more detail and ask him about in the interview segments. But just for posterity, I'll run through these real quick. Uh, Mike is male, Caucasian, uh, Irish. He obtained his bachelor's in psychology, which I think is an important detail to note. Um, He's Roman Catholic, married, and his primary occupation is an IT slash student. His favorite movie, book, TV, musician are Star Wars for A New Hope. Jailbird by Kurt Vonnegut, Arrested Development, and Tom Waits. He does agonize over naming favorites, which I think is going to be a trend, but we'll see. And does he collect anything? Yes. Regrets. Uh, That is something I collect as well. Um, He admires his father. My cat is sitting on the interview sheet. Um... He is a huge comedy nerd, like a stand-up comedy nerd. Uh, A lot of that I had to cut out just for context, which I'm really sad about. Oh, hey, um, not that I would ever need anyone to donate to my Patreon, but I guess I could put all the raw interviews up there. I mean, because no one wants that, but just an idea. Uh, The rest of it, oh, uh, he thinks that most medicines have in common that we all seem nervous. Which is a uh, important point that I that I that we get into in the interview section, and if he could change anything about himself, what would it be? He would like to talk less and listen more. Uh, I find that that talking a lot is also sort of a commonality among mentees, and would just ask that you be sensitive to that. It 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 doesn't mean that. Anyway, just you know, <laughs> and I, I really enjoy talking with him, so hope you enjoy it too. It's funny that, for me, me that reminds me of how frustrated I get since things in the arts are kind of more fluid as far as valuation and people's opinions about them than, say, science. Yeah. That the quality of being a good writer is so misunderstood that people say things like, oh, well, everyone has a good story in them, but that doesn't mean that they would write it well. And it's just like, yeah, it, it frustrates me how kind of, I guess, relative when you produce something that's say like a like a book, say you wrote a book and
1: yeah. So yeah, no, that's I, very, very interesting. Yeah. And bringing up the cultural part of it too, uh, there's so many mitigators to a term like intelligence mm. or a term like above average intelligence or genius or whatever word you want to apply to it, particularly a word like genius, which just it's just a loaded word, you know, yeah. it's a loaded word. And it's, yeah. and, and pretty much nobody likes that word, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, when was the last time anybody said it as a positive, like, I don't know about you and your friends, but it's like, you know, it's always when I lose my car keys or whatever, <laughs> they're like, okay, man. <laughs> I'm like, stop it. Dude. It doesn't mean that you're like, yeah. like some superhero or whatever, you know?
0: Yeah. 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 <laughs> People pick up on those small errors that you can make just with no really connection to your intelligence or whatever you call it and then they will use that as an indicator that you're not actually smart (laughs) oh
1: so much (laughs) they i i was and this is goes back like with my cousins even back to when like google first kind of hit the scene i was fact checked as a matter of fact i would say that that's when like my i'm i'm very lucky i'm a very close-knit family and so my uh, cousins and I uh, were always very, very close and stuff. And that was when my credibility—that and Jeopardy—that's when my oh, credibility yeah. actually hit. they like, "Oh, he's actually not completely full of shit," because they basically <laughs> thought that, you know. And then, and then when they could fact-check me and Google me and things because I do have a good recall, like, there's nothing I, I can't apologize for it. And uh, so, like when it comes to statistics or. You know, recalling an author or a title or a thing like that, and they check, then then, and literally only then, uh, (laughs) where they finally or that they always, you know, what they always call me? It's before your time, but they call me Cliff Clavin, who's the guy from Cheers, who's the bar know-it-all. You know, and it's like honestly, I'm the most curious person I know. The last thing I am is a know-it-all. It's more like a want to know everything, which is a big difference. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And it's, and it's so funny that they their way of verifying your intelligence is just on the recall aspect, which is like as we discussed, isn't necessarily.
1: Nah. recall, recall uh, is one of the expressions of get of of you know. I think a robust uh, intellect or a, or a, I like that word better. It's I don't know maybe I don't know. It's just I don't like going high and low. That's too simplified. And you know, in the sense of being kind of like a combination of recall, emotional intelligence, you know, you kind of come away with a word like robust or dynamic or something like that. Cause I know people that are really great with numbers, but they're extremely flat intellectual people. They're not, they're not curious, mm-hmm. um, but they can run numbers. That's great. Yeah. Does that yeah. make them, I mean, what, what are we talking about? Like what right. do we want the word G ultimately to even mean? Why do mm-hmm. we even seek to describe
0: it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what,
1: what, are, you know, cause if we want it to mean an intellectual threshold or a bar that people live either above or below or near, then uh, why? What would be yeah. the nature of that? Because the second you ascribe that, people feel left out.
0: Funny to me too that I, I believe that a lot of mensons, you know, were left out in a sense. I, we, we talked about this. Like some kind of an outsider that you realize at some point in your life and yeah. into a group and then become the bully to, to other people. It's, it's strange. It's just strange reversal.
1: (laughs) Well, I think also uh, when um, uh, my wife and I were talking, there's a show on television uh, called the 600 pound life. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a reality show about people. They get like the, uh, um, they're sort of shut in size folks and then they get this dramatic surgery. And then after the fact, there's a very high divorce rate. And there's the thing is, is it psychologically, you know, they might have been, you know, maybe 300 pounds or something in the third or fourth grade or something like that. Like they, they have developed their entire operational uh, um, services in terms of their social existence through um, a pretty tortured social ex- exposure. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, and so when you apply a physical solution like surgery to an emotional problem, like self-esteem, you're going to short circuit that, you know, that there's you are you didn't have surgery on your self-esteem. So therefore, you know, whatever created a 600 pound person uh, is still now in a 150 pound person. So point is, is that their marriage uh, failure rate is like extremely high. Yeah. High failure rate. I was like, their success rate is very low. So uh, it's very sad. You know, it's a very sad situation because you just think to yourself like, how much of that is like bullying and like menses for sure? Uh, I put on my answer for that. You know, what, what does menses have in common? We're all a little bit nervous. You know, everybody's a little bit extra, you know, like that. The Dunning, is it the Dunning-Kruger effect? I think it's called. I'm Absolutely. pretty sure it's Dunning-Kruger effect, which is that uh, the the more you know about things, the less certain you are of what you know, because by definition, you know that things are complex. And mm. so then, ergo, the, the less you know, the more confident you are. Because you don't recognize the complexity of it in the first place, so you mm-hmm. know that's where you got people going, oh, simple. Why do we, hey? You just got to do this. It's simple. If it was simple, it'd be simple, man. If it's not simple, you know that's why we're talking about it. You know, yeah. and if you think it's simple, that's because you're you're the slow coach. You know, mm-hmm. the trade's already passed you, but because it's not simple, you just don't see the complexity of it. That doesn't make it simple. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Huh. That's funny. My wife and I were talking about you know these things like a week ago too, and um, she you know, studied English literature, so she's very much, you know, in in a broad sense, right brain kind of type of person, and, but she also has a strange attitude where she believes that, you know, people like Albert Einstein were geniuses, but she will refuse to ascribe genius to an artist, I think because she understands the difference, she thinks that science is somehow more objective and, like, a hard way, like a, very accurate way to find a genius is like an objective field and, you know, coming up with relativity or or whatever. But when, when you talk about artists, it's, it's sort of like what I was saying about reading. It's hard for people to look at that and kind of develop the same awe sometimes I, I, or something.
1: Objective, like the subjectivity uh, right. of measurement. It's, mm. it's, it's kind of what I was saying. How precise can you measure something? Right. That's oh. how precisely you can define them as being a genius.
0: Uh, uh, and
1: to that extent, I, I feel like, what she's saying is reasonable. I'd, I certainly don't agree that there are geniuses and artists and artistic uh, means, mm. but I, I take her point. I, I think her point, which means that we don't have a definition for artistic genius, but it's absolutely undeniable.
0: Yeah, and it's, it's, that, you know, it's that same idea that because scientific breakthroughs have such a practical and, and kind of obvious benefit to human society that people i think are uncertain about the actual value of art and then you get people defunding the arts for you know since forever and it's uh that's unfortunate but, uh,
1: absolutely and i think also the people that def- people that defund art have not ever been exposed they've never been standing in a museum and been moved like that like they mm-hmm. they they haven't had an opportunity yet mm-hmm. you know and i would ask you know your wife just as i mentioned before previously i i, I see her point i take her point validly but i would also ask What is that based on? I mean, yes, the presence of measurement helps the identification of genius over here, but the idea that that therefore means that there isn't uh, a definition for genius, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. I I would grant this, if she might grant that the definition for artistry is more difficult and abstract to define Mm -hmm. in a a concrete, kind of a measurable way.
0: Related to that, Um, do you think that what we were just talking about, the ability to connect and understand art, that that type of, let's say, intelligence, is, you know, more or less common, if you could say, among people in METSA?
1: I guess I'd say that if you're looking at a group that has already been subtracted from the larger group as representing... I mean, a position of a 2% score uh, percentile on a given uniformly applied, you know, test or something like that, then you could say that they would have more similarity to one another in a deeper level examination than they would with the general 98% that they've just essentially tested out of. I think I'd go that far, but I don't, because I don't, because that's almost like saying our people in Mensa more, artistic or maybe whether that's appreciative or practicing either way I, I would i would kind of ball those together in a sense for the purpose of our conversation and i'd say that um gosh that is a very good question i would have to just uh say that just warrants i'd have to really think about it because i've spent a lot of time in my life as a musician and none of them are uh, informally mensa But I'm telling you that ability to hear a note out of the sky, and tune and tune an instrument to that.
0: In a similar way, and then this is maybe pushing it perhaps too far. uh, (laughs) um, What about as far as comparing Mensa with the general population? What do you think about kind of this uh, social emotional intelligence aspect? I mean, does being in Mensa you know predispose you to or make it more likely that you maybe are more stunted in those kinds of areas, or... Oh, wow. That's
1: interesting. <laughs> I actually thought your question was headed in a, second, in a different direction at first. Would you mind repeating that question? So I want to make sure that I'm answering it
0: after yeah. asking it. So, it, so I, I, I thought you were kind of getting at this when you say that um, Mensans collectively are kind of nervous people. Um, yeah. so have this, it's just a theory that I, from, you know, the little interactions that I've had with Mensans, I mean, it's not even enough to... Anyway, um, but I just have the sense that there's always something social emotionally a little off I mean I don't you know yeah. yeah
1: yeah that's absolutely the case and it's funny I have a great memory of Jason we were at um <laughs> yeah and I felt like Jason and I were probably the same age and probably like fit in it seemed like seemed like uh, a guy, I, I sort of thought he was kind of funny. And I was like, seems like my kind of guy, not taking himself uh-huh. too seriously. Like, okay. yeah, And kind of like started talking to him, have a great conversation. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, I'm like, man, this Mensa stuff is great. Like, and I looked down and all of his French fries were facing the same <laughs> direction. <laughs> yeah. So like halfway through his conversation, whatever he was thinking about, which I was just hanging on every word he was going ocd style on the north south arrangement of his french fries having them all like not touching the thing and in the right arrangement or whatever because a lot of us have quirks like that you know so i totally get it but that's when i was like oh well okay (laughs) there there we go did he tell you he once dated mary louise parker she's not she's not
0: super some reason
1: for some reason, that super shocked me, but then also sounds, that <laughs> rings somewhat familiar. I think that may have come up. Uh, he has a very interesting kind of a, a whirly, for kind of a life. Like, he's got a lot <laughs> yeah. of very cool stories, and yeah. he seems to be going 100 miles an hour and stuff. So, yeah, that's...
0: Just just a quick comment, you know, I think we'll come back to the art stuff in a moment, but it's funny, after what we just talked about, that you have Kurt Vonnegut here, which is great. Just reminded me of. I have another friend who, you know, I think would be immensely, he's just very left brained. I mean, at the risk of generalizing, told me that he read a Vonnegut book, and then when he was finished, he just, he says he didn't get it. Like, he didn't understand it. And I I just thought, yeah. Like, I, yeah, (laughs) I don't. don't." Do you happen to remember which one it was? He actually didn't remember which one it was, but I'll find out. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I think teach their own, I think. That, that a person pursues on their own. I, I mean, like, in other words, you know, it's great when you like uh, Catcher in the Rye. Okay, fine. That's because, like, six books were required for about 80% of people, and so that's the one you liked out of the six ones you were required to read, and you haven't read anything since then, really. So that doesn't mean that that's your favorite book. That means that that's the favorite one of the little sample size that you were forced to do, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, they're, they're, you know, when you're reading – And reading and reading after the compulsory stage in your life, Um, I think that when those people, frankly, I hate to use this word, but those Mm -hmm. those are the people that, frankly, get to have you know favorite writers and books and make comments because you you, you're not in a position. Vonnegut has such a riff on like 20th century and mid-century like writing, and he has such a uh, a uh, narrative. A style that if you don't have anything to compare it to, uh, it's like, I, I'll compare it to this. I, I saw the X-Files m- movie when it came out, mm-hmm. and I never saw one single episode of the X-Files. <laughs> so that's what it's like for a person that doesn't read to just pick up a Vonnegut book and try to fight through it. It's like, yeah. well... They, did, like, they didn't forget their lines. Like It wasn't a terrible movie. I had no idea what was going on from beginning to end, but uh, okay. Mm. So, like, Vonnegut <laughs> has jokes on jokes that are layered in uh, that are based on his, you know, because he's not a writer that tells you a story. He's a writer that, you know, tells you about a story. And it's up to you to do the work and do the heavy lifting, and that's why I love him. It's like Tom Robbins is like that too. Um, yeah, yeah. It's not a dark and stormy night Steinbeck type of delivery. It's <laughs> oh now i'm doing the work now you're making me tell myself the story you know mm. so that's like walking into a gym you, you know the next day you're sore you're like, you look at that book you're like, <laughs> okay, i don't want to do that work i want you to tell me the story i don't want to i don't want to write it myself you know
0: yeah yeah that's so interesting because i i i also believe that um people who aren't as refined uh a reader um tend to over rely on plot and when then the plot's gone they kind of panic you know so they can't really read you know novels that are uh i guess more stream of consciousness or abstract a little
1: yeah absolutely completely connected on on that exact point absolutely yeah. because yeah. that's exactly what i'm getting at is that they kind of maybe it's not that they don't want to it's that they're not prepared to do the mm-hmm. lifting, to do the work mm-hmm. uh when it comes to the types of reading that stretches you out you know If you want to read, uh, you know, magazines or, you know, uh, short stories or articles that are compelling and sort of journalistic, great. Use the muscle. That's fine. Nobody should ever – it's kind of like people that quit drinking. Like don't ever tell somebody how to do it. If they're doing it, just do it. Just you do it your way, and that's great. And if people like reading, uh, you know, short stories or the jokes in Reader's Digest, they're reading. It's better than clicking, you know. So, Yeah. uh, yeah, you know. Um, but I, I do think that if people are incrementally introduced to particular types of reading styles, it can absolutely ignite a life of reading. And mm-hmm. when they're forced to read material that may have been out of their reach at the time they were forced to read it, uh, reading itself can be a self-esteem exercise that it doesn't need to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people can have you know, difficulty picking up a book for enjoyment's sake. And that, to me, is... It's like going through a life without listening to songs. It's like you don't yeah. know what you're missing. The definition yeah. of not knowing what you're missing.
0: Mm-hmm. Huh. Oh, so that that kind of connects to one of my other questions is, um, I have very strong feelings about the Big Bang Theory. <laughs> I kind of hate it. And so I guess the, the suggestion I wanted to present to you is, the way that we've been talking about, say, Vonnegut versus... I don't know. I'll do respect a Stephen King or something. It's just
1: uh-huh. a, it's like a one-note thing, and uh, you get it. Then, then there's another guy with to get it. Then there's another get it. So for me, that's kind of why I got away from it. So I wouldn't say I hate it, but I don't mm-hmm. think I was really into it enough to give it a chance. That's
0: kind of how I see The Big Bang Theory as kind of a form of comedy that's a lot easier than, say, I don't know, just I'll just pull out Monty Python or something, and. Right does that track with you or what do you think that's
1: so classic because that was it's like a photo finish for me arrested development or monty python yeah i put arrested development (laughs) on your question, but i love monty python um yeah yeah. so i i can't here's the here's the reason why i got away from it i I, so for one thing uh, i hate the way this is about to sound because i'm not a tv snob i think that there's plenty on tv I think the TV is for us now what like the magazines were in like the forties and fifties were, that's really the outlet where the, you know, a lot of the good writing is. Mm-hmm. That's also where all of the crap simultaneously <laughs> also is. Yeah. But, uh, there is good out there for sure. If you're willing to go and try through and find it and stuff like that. So I'm not like some television snob, but you know, I watched that show, um, and you know, clever wordplay, uh mm-hmm uh the you know you could see the arc of the show by the third episode or the second or third episode or something like that
0: um oh by the way i'm a huge like uh media culture snob so you you shouldn't worry about doing that i <laughs> i understand well, oh, oh okay <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know why else would i hate you know big bang theory so much but um yeah. <laughs> And that concludes episode two of Men's Blining Mensa. I once again thank all of you lovelies for listening in, giving this a shot. And I will see you in episode three, in which I will treat politics as the main topic. And we will continue with Mike's interview, uh, That a portion I've selected out of his interview that involves politics more directly. So... Um, I will see you all then. Somebody call my mama. Good night.